in part two of a series that, um, uh, wow, I'm finding there's always relevance to this subject, even though it's one that people don't like talking about, as we discovered last week. Uh, the title of our series is Through the Curtain, Through the Curtain. We're talking about death and the afterlife and all that it means for us today, because when you talk about this subject and when you think about this subject, you start to realize that it touches on so many things uh, and, and your particular view of what happens is going to affect the way that you live your life with all of these things. And in, in Christian thought, there's a whole lot of pieces and parts that come into this whole thing of, okay, what happens when we die, what happens in the afterlife, and so on. Last week, we read from uh, Philippians chapter 1 and the little little chunk of scripture that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Remember, he was in, in prison and kind of torn in between where he really wanted to be. Seems like he's nearing the end of his life, and he talks about, uh, for me to live is, and to die is, Gain, a strange thing that he would talk about this being gain. And uh, he's, he mentions a departure that would come. And that departing and being with Christ is far better than what he's up to here. But then he says, well, I'm convinced that I must remain in the body. So he has a really hopeful perspective on death. And this is counter to the usual way that we think about it. Um, not everyone can have a state funeral uh, like the Queen did. Uh, I did one on, on Friday, not a state funeral, of course, but I did one on Friday. I did one last, uh, last weekend on, on Saturday. Uh, but it comes to every single one of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we're coming from in life, no, even no matter what our religious views uh, we are going to, at one point or another, walk through the curtain. So last week we tried to take some of the fear out of it by looking at what Paul said uh, to this, this church. Uh, the question is, is that just for Paul or is that for us? And maybe Paul's wrong. You know, who's, who, who is Paul, someone might say. And we're doing this series in a way that I want you to feel comfortable, especially those of you who are online. I want you to feel comfortable sharing this with people who are maybe of a different religious view, people who have no religious view whatsoever, uh, because I want to challenge some of the assumptions out there about death and uh, the afterlife and so on. Uh, so you feel free to be a part by sharing and liking and subscribe to our, our YouTube channel as well. Leave comments. We'll try and publish them uh, on the screen live as they come in, all right? So today, uh, the question, uh, if Paul is right and there is something on the other side, well, is it real? And number two, is it for everyone? Is it for everyone? Is heaven for everyone? Can you be included in the hope that Paul writes about to this church? So we move past the curtain of death. And remember last week I told you a story about the, the wife of Louis Paolo, the evangelist who, who died. And she got to a point where she said, well, I don't say he passed away. 
we often use that language and say someone passed away. And she said, I don't use that language anymore because I don't think he passed away. I think he died. But he's not gone. He's just on the other side. So she trained herself to stop saying he passed away. Interesting. I'm not saying that it's wrong to say that, but interesting her take and how she taught herself to think of death in a different way. So introducing the afterlife. Is it for everyone? Is heaven for everyone? These kinds of questions come into play. And I could do the really easy thing and a quote for you some passages of scripture and say, well, you need to, you know, read this and memorize this and believe this and go home. Uh, but I, I don't know that that would work nearly as well as trying to wrestle with some of the views out there that are competing uh, with Paul's view that he expresses here to the, the Philippians. Um, because what happens in death and even in life in general is that the convictions that you have, whatever they are, the beliefs that you have, the worldview that you have, it comes to the surface and gets squeezed out of you in, in a time of crisis. When you're dealing with crisis, when you're dealing with a shock, when you're dealing with a tragedy, when you're dealing with um, uh, whatever thing comes out from left field and just kind of takes your legs out from under you, that's where you find out what you believe. And that's where you see where your convictions hold. And when it comes to the subject of death, that's what happens. You see what people really believe by the way that they're reacting, by the way that they're speaking, by the way that they're trying to process what's going on. I talked to a person in our church. She's over with the kids this morning, and she had lost someone very close to her in a, or relatively close to her in a car crash. Uh, just during the week, persons in a different country and just just like that lost their life and the shock that, that comes. And how do you react to that? And I'm going to tell you that you're basically going to fall into one or two views. Before we get into the scripture and try and answer the question, we need to deal with, the, with this idea of worldview um, because you basically got two choices and you're, you're going to fall into one of these two camps because they're pretty well mutually exclusive. And you'll see why in a moment. The prevailing view about death and about life in general, okay, is not what you read in the pages of Scripture. The prevailing view out there, this is the view of most of the people in, in uh, North America, Many people, your friends, your family, your co-workers, your classmates are going to almost by instinct believe this view. And we can call the view naturalism. This is what is, is basically taught to us. It's, we learn it by osmosis. I mean, even from grade school, even from pre-K, parents like this is just part of the way that people think about life naturalism and just simply define nothing exists beyond the natural world. So uh, that means that everything that we have is explained by natural laws. So there's nothing else outside of that. If you can't experience it with your five senses, if you can't experiment with it, 
using science or scientific method. If you can't look at it, can't analyze it, can't figure it out, it, it, everything is going to have an explanation by the laws of nature in this view. Uh, but there's a lot of implications when that comes to even death itself. Can you tell me what some of those are? And you can play along online if you want to, leave a comment and we'll post it. If naturalism is true, what's that going to mean? What's that imply? It means death is final. Yeah, it means there's nothing after, right? What else does it mean? means there's no miracles. Yeah, if naturalism is true, then there's no such thing as miracles because if there were miracles, then there would have to be a, a God. And in naturalism, there isn't one. There's a hand at the back. Okay, yeah, there may be a, a, an ending to earth purely explained by nature. Yes, Nick in the front. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Yeah, be <laughs> M-E-R-R-Y, which is a saying out of the New Testament, actually. Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, he, he uses that line, and he says, well, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then, you know, that means you just sort of eat, drink, and be merry type thing. Yes? Death of Christ was meaningless if naturalism is true. Because there's no, there's no idea of atonement for sin. What is sin if naturalism is true? You see, you've got all these problems and pieces and parts. So no personal uh, creator God if naturalism is true. Remember, folks, this is, and especially in Quebec, I'll get to Quebec in a moment because Quebec has a really, really odd take on naturalism. But it means there's no personal creator God. Uh, I remember having a fierce back and forth uh, uh, argument with a guy on Facebook. He had advertised something that our church was doing, and he, atheist, chimed in and you know was attacking what we were doing and all that. And he said, "You know, you just you're just inventing all of this because you can't cope with the harsh realities of life and death." And that's what you do, that's what you Christians do, and that's what your churches do, because there is no God. You need to wake up and stop believing in fairy tales. That's a classic statement of naturalism. It means there's no infinite soul or spirit. By infinite, I mean it has a beginning but will have no end. It means there's nothing after a person dies. It means there's no afterlife because naturalism can't explain that. And it also means that you and I are here, everything is here by the result of time and chance and, you know, molecules combining together and DNA and all of that. That's how you explain everything. By, it's, it's, a, it's a collection of atoms, you know, it's a bunch of DNA. That's how you explain it all. And what that means is actually that you don't even have free will. And the, the, the very popular atheists will tell you that, that naturalism taken to its logical conclusion means free will is, a, is a, an illusion. You don't have free will. You don't have the ability to choose. 
Uh, all it is is a bunch of atoms and molecules combining together. So you think that you have the free will to choose. You don't. It's all predetermined by your DNA. That's why you behave a certain way. That's why you're, you came to church. This is all having to do with DNA and all that. You don't have really a free will if you take naturalism to its logical conclusion. And in Quebec, we have a really interesting take on naturalism, and that is another ism that, that I'll teach you, and that's secularism. You don't need to be taught secularism. You live in it. You live in the province of Quebec. In the province of Quebec, secularism is law. It's law. So secularism is a kind of extension of naturalism, and what it means is, okay, you, your religious view is off to the side. Religious view is not part of public thinking and life. There is no true religious view. This is a person's individual decision, an individual choice, but has no bearing on the real world, and we push it aside. We do not operate by religion uh, in Quebec, and in Quebec you have a whole history where the province was essentially even politically controlled uh, in a religious way, and so there's this pushback, and here we have secularism. So that's why, uh, you know, people who work in the public sector are not allowed to wear whatever religious uh, identification, cross, uh, yarmulke, uh, whatever, uh, whether a person's Muslim or Jewish or Christian or Sikh or whatever, they can't wear those things when they're on the job, when they work in the public sphere. Because the idea is, I'm not saying it's right, I'm just saying the idea is, well, you may be using your position of authority to influence someone to your particular religious view. We don't like that. We're secularist here. Keep your religion to yourself. It's off to the side. It is no longer part of the way that we operate as a society. And here you have a lady saying, we teach, we don't preach. I mean, I don't remember the last time uh, you know, uh, I cared if a policeman was wearing his cross or not. I cared whether or not he gave me a ticket, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't recall the last time a policeman tried to preach the gospel to me. Um, so, but anyway, this is the justification. You see, it comes out of naturalism, which sort of evolves into secularism, and this is the view that we live in. This is the view that you will see everywhere. It's in the popular culture. Naturalism explains everything. Now, there are some, some problems with naturalism that need to be stated, okay? I, I want to challenge it, but just very quickly, you'll find more on this if you uh, go back in time a little bit to our Easter series from last year. And there's a whole big thing where, where we talk about this when we go from zero to belief in Easter. But just briefly, okay, naturalism, there's problems that need to be stated here. The first thing is you can't explain using naturalism the really compelling arguments that you have for another ism, and that's theism. And theism is the belief in a personal and creator God. And naturalism has a very hard time trying to dismantle the basic arguments for a creator God, a personal creator God. And these arguments have been around for centuries. There's three primary ones, okay? I don't know if you remember Easter, but you could probably even figure this out intuitively. The first one starts with C. 
It's the argument from cause, or we sometimes call, call this the cosmological argument. You get, you get to a point where you say, well, what caused all this? Where did it all come from? You go back and you go back and you go, where did it all come from? And now the majority of people in the scientific community worldwide strongly believe that the cosmos had a beginning. Strongly. In fact, we're using a really cool telescope right now called the James Webb that can, is so powerful, this thing is seeing back in time, uh, bringing images that, of things that we've never seen them like that before. And this is based on the view that the universe, the cosmos, actually had a beginning. Well, we've known that since the beginning, right? The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm not talking about a debate about how and, you know, creationism and all that stuff. I'm saying you get to a beginning. Well, how did it begin then? And you have two choices. Either it started itself out of nothing and something just kind of came from nothing. Or what do you have? You have a powerful creator that started this and that created out of nothing. This is a compelling argument that's from cause. Then you have an argument from design and from the way that we, we observe the cosmos and we look at it and we say, my goodness, is that ever complicated? Like, look at the design and look at the complexity of even the smallest things that we can, we can look at. It's like a machine. It gives all the appearances of some, something or someone intelligent seems to have designed this. Uh, I need to tell you that I've upgraded from BlackBerry, finally. Finally. People have been praying for me, you know. And so what I did was I actually got one of these flipper phones. I mean, this thing is like the coolest. I'm just going to leave it here so you can look at it online in envy of my new flip phone. You know, and this is this is, you know, the latest deal. So I've, I've come out of the dinosaur age with phones, and now I got this real phone. And we look, at, we look at this, and we say, what a piece of technology this is. I mean, look at this thing, what it can do. You know, it's got so many bells and whistles and gadgets and all of this. And, and it, but the truth is that a basic human cell, and there's only trillions of them in your body, but a basic human cell is more complicated and more efficient than this thing. And this thing actually copies what is already in design. You see that little hinge there that everybody's excited about? The flip phone? Well, you've got so many things in your body that do this. This is just a crude copy of what's already designed. Look at your hands, look at your elbows, look at, you know, this is a hinge. But this is already something that's in nature. All we're doing is copying what's already been designed. Nobody in their right mind would say that this guy popped into existence by itself. Nobody would, in their right mind would say that. But if it's in the living world, if it's in the organic world, we say it must have popped into existence by itself. Why do we do that? I don't know. But we're a lot more complicated than this crude device, as cool as it is. That's the, the argument from design. And then you have the argument from morality. And that means that we all have this sense built into us of morals. doesn't matter where you go on planet Earth, someone does something 
maybe you did something or, and, and there's a moral issue that's involved and we say, hey, that's wrong. Well, who says it's wrong? Why do you say it's wrong? Where did you get that idea from? What's wrong? Why is it that you can go any, any, pretty well any place in the world and commit murder or be deceptive and lie, and people will say, hey, that's wrong, especially if they're the victim of it. That's wrong. That's wrong what you did. Why is it wrong? Why do we seem to have this across the human experience? Naturalism cannot explain this. Um, and so the, it runs into uh, problems just when you think about theism. The, the argument is, well, there's a personal, moral, powerful creator who's immaterial and timeless and spaceless who brought all of this into being. He created time and space and matter. And he's the foundation of morality and he created us in his image and that's why we have that sense of morality because it comes from God. This, uh, these are classical arguments for theism and naturalism has a hard time uh, trying to defeat them. But beyond this, people have human exp experiences in life and when it comes to death, even in death, I mean the amount of information, the amount of data out there, the amount of personal testimony out there uh, uh, when you talk about so-called near-death experiences. And folks, this cannot be pushed off to the side. This cannot be easily dismissed. When you've got people who've never met each other and they talk about a kind of common experience, you know, they flatlined on the table, uh, on the operating table, and were dead for a period of time, and they say they saw things, and they say they experienced things. Yes, for sure, there's a lot of confusion out there. Yes, there's a lot of inconsistencies out there. Yes, some people have these experiences, and they don't line up with the Scripture, or they even contradict the Scripture. But folks, people are hearing and seeing something. They're having some kind of an experience that's very compelling at times. You know, when you have a story of a person who died on the operating table and says, well, I, I, uh, I felt my, my soul lift out of my body and looked down and saw the doctors operating on me and I could hear what they said and they recount exactly what they said. And then I went up through the ceiling onto the top of the building and I, there's a red shoe up there in the corner and such and such a floor. And people go up and they look and they say, by golly, there is a red shoe up there. Well, how do you explain that? How do you explain that by naturalism? There's an account of a person who flatlined on the table. Again, this idea of their spirit or soul departed from their body. They saw a car accident in the street, down on the corner on such and such a street. And they, this is verified. They say, well, what's going on here? How did this person? That's impossible. Well, if naturalism is true, it's impossible. So you can't, you can't deny the human experience that people have that is inexplicable simply by naturalism. You can't. You can't push it away. And finally, naturalism actually defeats itself in a philosophical sense. And some, some use this argument to attack naturalism. It's a good argument. If naturalism is true, then nothing is true. Because if naturalism is true, you have no free will to choose and decide that naturalism is true. It's all an illusion. 
It's all, philosophically, it falls on itself. You, you, you don't have truth, you don't have morals, you don't have anything, you don't have free will. It's just a bunch of molecules colliding together. So you, don't, you shouldn't even be able to say that something is true or something is false. But this is obviously ridiculous, folks. I mean, you operate with free will all the time. So we can, we can find ways uh, to, to live and dismiss God and dismiss all of these things and live with this naturalistic view. But is it satisfying to people? And I don't think it is. I don't think it's enough. I don't think it brings people an understanding about the way that life works. I don't think people can explain their experiences with this worldview in mind. But it is for sure the dominant view out there is naturalism. But again, when you have trouble in life, when you have crisis in life, when you're staring at the grave... The, the, the impending grave is coming, that's when your convictions come to the surface. The other one, which competes with naturalism, like I said, the two are mutually exclusive, is supernaturalism. I'll use that term. And this simply means that there's an existence beyond our natural world that naturalism can't explain. There's something else. And naturalism cannot do it. It cannot satisfy. It's insufficient. All it can do is stay in its own lane, but it cannot explain the rest. It can't explain morality. It can't explain love. It can't explain sacrifice, why people sacrifice themselves for others. It can't explain these kinds of things, and it certainly can't explain these experiences that people have that seem to imply that there's something else. So when you talk about supernaturalism, well, you've got the opposite. You've got there is a personal creator God. Supernaturalism acknowledges that. There is an infinite soul or spirit there are miracles. They do happen. There is an afterlife. We are not the result of time plus chance. We're the result of a divine mind somehow. And we do have a free will. The two are in direct clash with one another. The question is, which one is yours? Which is your conviction this morning, and it doesn't matter. I found that people who attend church weekly, they have the same questions and the same struggles that everybody else does in terms of these questions of the afterlife. And sometimes people, they know the scripture, they could, they could stand up here and teach it better than any pastor. But is it a conviction? Is it something that has gone into their mind and into their heart that they really, truly believe? Paul certainly believed it. Paul certainly believed that he was going to depart and be with Christ. So back to the question, is it for everyone? Is heaven for everyone? If Paul is right and it exists, is it for everyone? And I want to uh, give you something else that he wrote today to help you understand this. And this is from uh, his first letter that we have, or sorry, second letter that we have to the Corinthian church. Now, some of you may be saying, well, who in the world is Paul anyway? You're going to go by the opinion of this one, one man who wrote, you know, more than half of your New Testament that's 2,000 years old, and that's what you're going on? Well, yes. Why? Well, because of Jesus. All right, so here's, here's the deal in a nutshell. If Jesus 
rose from the dead, if he really did do that, then he has commissioned Paul to communicate here in the Scripture. So he's writing on the authority of Jesus who gave him that mandate. So I would venture to say, if Jesus rose from the dead, we would do well to listen to what Paul says and what he writes here because he's been commissioned by the Master. You say, well, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Go back to my Easter series and I'll take you through that and and give you the evidence for the resurrection. But I'm going to assume that most of you in the room and people who are watching, that you're in that camp. You're in the faith camp. You say, yes, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So how do you claim and how are you a part of the promise that Paul certainly had for himself? And this you find in 2 Corinthians chapter, I'll start in chapter 3. And, and what Paul is going to do here is he's going to teach this church how, I'll put it this way, how you become part of the we. And not we en français, the we in terms of a group of people. How do you become part of the we? Second Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Uh, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not sure who the we is yet. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. This has to do with the Old Testament and uh, Moses bringing the message of God before the people and he would cover his face sometimes because the countenance of his face had changed. By the way, today is a very special day in the Jewish calendar. Any of you know what it is? It's the new year. Rosh Hashanah starts today. You talk about the afterlife. Well, this does have to do with the afterlife. Uh, this, This day kicks off a period of days called the Days of Awe. And in 10 days will be the highest uh, Jewish holiday of the year. That's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And what happens today is actually, while it's the new year, it's also a day of judgment. It's a day where God says whether or not your name will be written in the book of life for another year. And so he, he, it's a day of judgment, yes, but over the period of the next 10 days, you can, through repentance and uh, good works, and prayer, and fasting, you can, in effect, change the outcome. So you, you, and God will seal that outcome on the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur. So whether you'll live or whether you'll die, whether you'll be sick or whether you'll be well, this is decided finally in 10 days. So this period, the days of awe, yes, there's celebration today, yes, there's lots of great food uh, in, in Rosh Hashanah, but this is about the afterlife too, because where do you go after, you see? So a very serious time of year for them. So back, back to our, our passage, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. So what's he saying? He's saying that when the law of Moses is read, it's like the people are blocked from God. It's like there's a veil that covers their face. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone, anyone means anyone, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, 
the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all, that's like from the south, you know, we all, you all, we all, and we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So if you catch it there, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, they become part of the we. It's conditional whenever anyone turns to the Lord. And as you read the next couple of chapters... You see this word, we or us, I counted 33 times. Over and over and over again. He wants people to feel included in this massive group of people who have turned to the Lord. So chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. This is talking about the afterlife that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Again, the supernaturalist view. What is unseen, since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. Well, you're having a bad day. You need to memorize this passage. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. The eternal versus just the temporary. And then finally, in uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. And this is, this is often read at funerals and with good reason. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, this is a passage you want to memorize again. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 10. The earthly tent. Paul was a tent maker uh, by trade. So he refers to the body as a tent. If it's destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Remember what Jesus said, in my house are many, many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have told you, but I go there to prepare a place for you. We have a, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan. Some of you are groaning more than others. <laughs> Some of you, you woke up this morning and you literally groan. You say, oh man, that hurts. That pain hurt. That knee hurt. That back hurts. I want to stay in bed and watch the stream, <laughs> right? Not to slight anyone who's watching the stream, but you know what I mean. Sometimes you feel that groaning a little more than, than you want to, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. He's using an image here. It's like, right now, it's like, you, it's like you're unclothed. For while we are in this tent, uh, have any of you actually been in a tent in your life? You ever built a tent, slept in a tent, outside, in your backyard, gone camping? All right, so there's a way to build it. 
there's a way not to build it. You know, you've got to take care of it. You don't want holes in it. While we are in this tent, we groan and we, we do not wish to be unclothed. Right now we're burdened, but we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead, not with a tent that's going to get old and it's going to tear and it's going to be destroyed. We long to be clothed, not with this tent, but instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That's actually banking language. He's trying to say there's a guarantee. You can bank on it. You have the presence of the Spirit. That's a guarantee of what is to come. It's like a deposit. Therefore, we are always confident. Are you confident today? Are you part of the we today? He says, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So it's like there's two different places a person can be away from the Lord, and at home in the body. Interesting. Says the same thing to the Philippians. I want to depart and be with Christ. For we live by faith and not by sight. You live by sight, you're just going to see your tent start to decay. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be, watch, away from the body, and at home with the Lord. Somebody asked me this week, they said, well, how, isn't the Lord with us now? What does he mean by saying away from the body at home with the Lord? I thought we were with the Lord now. Well, in a sense, the Spirit has come into your life. If you're a person of faith, the Spirit has come into your life. Yes, yes, the Lord lives in you, yes. But you're, that's, it's an incomplete package right now. We're, we're in the, as one author says, we're in the already and not yet. Not yet are you actually in the literal presence of God. Here he says, this is what will happen at death. We would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it. You can be in one or the other, apparently, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for the things uh, while done in the body, whether good or bad. Scholars have wrestled with this text because he seems to be talking to believers here, and yet he's talking about judgment, what kind of judgment. This is most typically thought of as what they call the bema seat in the Greek language. You would have sometimes in the games, uh, they would have a, when they were handing out the medals, they would have a bema seat there, and the judge would hand out the gold and the silver and the bronze or whatever the likeness was back then. It was a judgment of which, which kind of medal do you get based on your performance. It wasn't a judgment of condemnation. So this is the way that this is thought of. But do you see the bigger point there? Are you part of the we? 
Are you always confident and do you always know? This is why uh, uh, Louis Paolo's wife trained herself to think differently about death and, and to, to learn and to uh, understand and to appreciate. My husband is not gone. He's not passed away. He's over there. He's with the Lord. He's away from the body and at home with the Lord. I'm still here, but he's not gone. See, and we have to cut against the grain uh, of this naturalism thing in order to, to hold fast to the hope of heaven. Now, my question for you as we, we finish up today, and whoever's in the room, musicians, you can come to the, to the platform and play a little bit. Uh, are you part of the we? This is, a, this is the challenge that we have. If Paul's right, and the afterlife is real, and heaven is real, you say, well, what about the people who aren't Christians? What about the people who don't follow Jesus? They follow some other religious view, or they have no religious view. What about them? Well, we'll talk about that next week, okay? You stay with us here. But in terms of heaven, in terms of the hope that we have here, that's, that's taught, are you a part of the we? Maybe you don't know for sure. Maybe you say, well, I once was, but I'm not anymore. And you're, you're not sure where you stand. Paul makes it really simple, makes it really clear. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, what does that mean? Well, if you're turning to the Lord, you're turning away from something. And this is the idea of, of repentance. A person's walking this way and they turn to the Lord. They turn in another direction. And if there's anyone who knew about that, it was Paul himself. The man who tried to destroy the church. The man who sent Christians to prison and even to their deaths. Had this about face in his life. Had this 180 degree turn. Whenever ever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Maybe you're here and you need you need an assurance that you are part of the we. Maybe you're here and you say, I've, I have never turned to the Lord. I'm walking in such and such a direction, and this is a different take on this. I hold to this whole naturalism thing. Uh, wherever you're, you're at today, the arms of God are open to you, calling to you, to say, will you turn to me? Will you build a conviction, a worldview that's not based on naturalism and you know, there is no God and all the consequences of that, but one that's based on Jesus. Jesus at the center and everything following that. He's, he's waiting for you with, with arms wide open for you to turn toward Him and start walking toward Him. Father, I pray for each one who's in the room today, those who are uh, watching online, those who are going to watch later, people who are going to listen to audio feeds later. That's the question, O oh God. Would you, would you solidify it in our hearts that we would know that you are first in our lives? Maybe you've never 
even prayed before, maybe you've never called out to God before, you can say, Jesus, I come to you and I turn my life over to you. I don't understand it all, but I know the mess that I have made of my life. I know the transgression in my life and the sin in my life. And Lord, I just turn my life over to you and ask God, if you are real, that you would take me and you would receive me, Jesus, and you would start to change me from the inside out. I surrender myself to you. Maybe you're a a person who's been in church for for so many years and you, you've lost a conviction about it. You've lost a certainty about it. You've lost a confidence in it. Lord, restore that in people. Restore hope in people's hearts, Father. May we not look at the temporary. May we not look at what is wasting away, but may we fix our eyes on what is eternal with no beginning, with no ending, the God who never changes, who holds His hands out to us, Lord. We take Your hands once again. Strengthen us and encourage us, we pray. And Lord, uh, uh, in the days ahead, would you, would you continue to build Your life in us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Lord bless you today. Remember to pick up your kids over in screen 11. On Wednesday night, we're going to deal with a couple of questions on Zoom in our Bible study. Did Paul have a near-death experience? The answer will surprise you. And does the soul sleep at death? A very, very common question that is asked. We'll deal with that on Wednesday night on Zoom. God bless you today. Have a wonderful Sunday.